As we come now to uh, the Bible, let me encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles. You can find a, a pew Bible on the rack in front of you um, or um, your own Bible. We're looking uh, this morning at uh, Mark chapter 7, and I'm going to read from Mark 7 verse 31 through to Mark 8 verse 21. Mark uh, chapter 7, beginning at verse uh, 31. Let's then uh, hear God's word. Then he, that is of course Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and Having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is God's word. Amazing miracles, amazing unbelief. God's astonishing, amazing, miraculous grace to us. And yet, our astonishing, amazing unbelief, lack of comprehension, lack of understanding, lack of really getting it. And yet, despite our human frailty and, yes, sinfulness and brokenness, God's continued pursuit of us and his amazing miracles and amazing grace and amazing love and our amazing unbelief. In popular culture, there is one or a couple of examples of this sort of thing. If you are a movie fan of the history of popular movies, you may know that the famous American movie director, Alfred Hitchcock, in all his movies would appear himself in the story And if you know that, you can look out for him and spot him and say, that's Hitchcock. But for those who do not know, that appearance is not understood, not comprehended, not heard, not seen. And somewhat similarly, God in the incarnation of Jesus has written himself as the author of life into the story of life with an amazing, miraculous incarnation, amazing miracles to show who he is. And yet so often, we miss it. It's easy, isn't it, as a Christian, as we go through our Christian life to become, if not deaf to what God is doing, at least hardened not comprehending. Oh, when we first became a Christian, it was easy to believe God for anything, but now we're older, we've seen a bit of life. It's harder to grasp His amazing grace, His amazing miraculous power. The author of life, writing Himself into the story of life, and yet we can miss it. If you're not yet a Christian, from a Bible point of view, 
God is constantly upholding the whole universe, the very breath that I use to speak, the the beat of your heart inside. It's all a sign of his power. And from the Bible's point of view, it's astonishing that sometimes we miss it. Another example of this in more recent popular culture is the uh, renowned violinist Joshua Bell. In uh, Boston, in a theater in Boston, a uh, well-regarded, prestigious theater in Boston, he had uh, sold out every seat in that theater with an average ticket price of $100 a seat. And of course, some of them would have been far more than that if that was the average. Two days later, he appeared on a uh, Washington, D.C. subway, busking, playing his violin for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. As he played there, over a thousand people filed past him playing. Uh, Just 20 uh, gave him a little bit of uh, money. Only seven stopped at all to listen. And only one recognized him. During those 30 or 45 minutes, Joshua Bell, who two days earlier had just sold out a theater in Boston for $100 average a seat, Joshua Bell received in his open violin case a total of $32. And of that $32, the one person who recognized him gave 20. But if they had ears to really hear, they would have heard Joshua Bell playing on a violin worth $3.5 million dollars but they missed it bar one amazing miraculous grace amazing unbelief and yet even more amazing the pursuit of God and his love to us in our brokenness and 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 a human failure that we all experience his amazing miraculous love to to us And Mark here in this story has four sub-stories that show us this amazing, miraculous love to us, even in the context of our often amazing unbelief. Uh, The first story is a story of how Jesus heals even when the culture is against it. This story is the end of chapter 7. It runs from verse 31 through to verse 37. It's the story of of, uh, Jesus healing uh, the deaf and mute man. Verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they uh, begged him to heal him. And Jesus does. 
but in a rather unusual way. He puts his finger into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. What on earth is going on? In ancient times, human spit was thought to have medicinal properties. So there's one a story from ancient times of a Roman emperor who was somewhat flummoxed to discover that his spit reportedly had actually healed someone, whether it did or not, I doubt, um, though every mother of a toddler, as she believes, it seems, in the medicinal properties of spit. Of course, this man who is deaf cannot hear Jesus say, I'm going to heal you. So what Jesus does is he enacts what he's about to do. He mimes it for him. He says to him through his actions that he's going to heal him. And then for us, rather grossly, he spits, I think, probably on his hands and then touches his tongue. I'm going to heal you here and here. Amazing miracle. But then why does Jesus sigh? He looked up to heaven, verse 34. He sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which is, uh, just uh, means be opened, as we're told. It's the first uh, two times in this story that he sighs. The other time is in verse 12 of chapter 8, where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and their uh, unbelief. Here, in this first story of Jesus' healing the deaf man, he sighs because of the context. Jesus' healing, even when the culture is against it. This region of where Jesus is, we're told, is the Decapolis, the ten cities. And for those of us who've been following the series week by week, you may remember that just a little while ago, Jesus was in this region. And this is a, a place where the dominant culture was Greco-Roman, pagan. It was not a predominantly Jewish religious culture. And Jesus there had cast out the man with the legion of demons because the, the demonic influence of the Roman legionaries. And then he'd been thrown out of the region. But now Jesus is back in a culture that's against what he's doing. And he heals. Even there, he sighs. <sighs> Why don't they see? Why don't they hear? But he heals. It's a very important lesson for us, those of us Christians who perhaps feel these days that the culture is against Christian things. We shouldn't run away from the opposition. Nor should we uh, unthinkingly and unlovingly and ungraciously antagonize it. Here's Jesus healing, even though the culture is against it. And perhaps you're from a secular culture and you think these Bible-believing, Bible-thumping people, they won't want me. We do. We love you. 
We're all human. We all need grace. We don't run from the culture. We offer Jesus and his healing power in the culture. It, it, this has been, of course, the, the story of, uh, of the church down through the years, uh, right back uh, to the Reformation. The Reformation with its strengths and weaknesses, for it was a human movement, and certainly not everything about the Reformation was perfect. But it did rediscover the Bible in the English language and the translation of the Bible. When the Bible was first translated in the English language, it was hugely controversial. One historian describes what happened like this, and I'm reading from his work. The translation of the Bible into English soon brought about the displacement of Latin as the language of public worship. It led at first to some disorder For people would take English New Testaments to church and would read from them aloud to their neighbors in the audience while the priest was engaged in speaking Latin. Uh, This did not please the king at the time, King Henry, and he issued various edicts that were largely ignored, one of which, and I quote, went like this. His majesty straightly chargeth and commandeth that no person or persons shall openly read the Bible in the English language in any churches. But they did. Jesus heals even in a culture that's against it. The second sub-story of this amazing, miraculous grace, even in the context of our unbelief, is of Jesus feeding even when Christian leaders cannot believe it. This, of course, is the story of the feeding of the 4,000 in the first part of chapter 8. It runs from verse 1 to verse 10, and it's a familiar story. But have we grasped just how amazing it is that the disciples cannot believe that Jesus is going to be able to feed the 4,000. Verse 4, his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Well, hold on, apostles. Hold on, 12 disciples. Hold on. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. Can you not now believe that he can feed 4,000? But it's such a human pattern, particularly among Christian leaders, because Christian leaders feel the responsibility to make sure that everyone is fed and cared for and provided for. It's so easy for us to think, well, yes, in theory, Jesus can feed 5,000. I've seen him do it, but now will he? I uh, remember when I was um, doing some mission work, I uh, was leading a team of college students uh, teaching English as a foreign language in a Muslim country. I would go around uh, Oxford and Cambridge University in England and I would recruit college students and I'd take them with me on a trip to this uh, mission, uh, this uh, Muslim country for a, for a month every summer. And um, 
We would teach English as a foreign language. One year, for some reason that I forget, the finances were very behind. Uh, It was run on a shoestring. We had no real money. It was very much hand to mouth. And uh, that next day, I had to buy an airline ticket to, uh, for all the college students because the airline said it had to be bought that day, otherwise there was going to be no space. And the money from the college students hadn't yet come in, and I didn't have the money. And so the mission trip was in jeopardy. And I remember sharing that in a prayer meeting the night before, that I needed something to happen. And the next morning, uh, pushed under the door where I was uh, renting a room in that house, was an envelope just with my name written on it. And inside, in cash, was the exact amount I needed to buy those airline tickets. God provides for his work. Do not fear. Have faith. Of course, there's another side to it too, isn't there? Jesus could have fed those 4,000 people uh, with nothing as a starting point. He could have created food ex nihilo from nothing, but he did not. He used the seven loaves and the few fish. And so we all need to do our part. Jesus feeds, he provides, even when Christian leaders cannot quite believe it. Well, then the the third story, we've had Jesus uh, feeding, even though Christian leaders do not believe it. We have Jesus healing, even when the culture is against it. But now we have Jesus saving, even when religious legalism attacks it. This is the story of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees in verses 11 uh, to 13. And the Pharisees, verse 11, are arguing with him. They're, particularly, they're, they're debating with him the need for him to provide a sign from heaven. And again, he sighs deeply. And of course, we can understand why. It's what, at one level, it's reasonably obvious, I suppose, why this would have been exasperating for Jesus. The, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, for a sign from heaven. Well, hold on. He's just fed 4,000 people. Does not that count? That, that story would have got around. It wasn't hidden. That's a pretty good sign. And then they come to him and say, well, Jesus, how about a sign from heaven? It's like, what do you want me to do? Well, how about 5,000? Well, I've already done that. But what is more? The specific sign is a deliberate fulfillment of the messianic pattern in the Old Testament. That God had fed his people in the wilderness, in the desolate place, with manna from heaven. And now Jesus, the greater than Moses, 
gives bread from heaven. Yeah, they, they, cannot, they cannot hear it. They cannot grasp it. In the Decapolis, the secular area, they, they at least begin to, or they, they seem like they're getting there. He does all things well. He even heals the, the de- the, makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, which is another messianic promise. They're wondering, could this be him? But the religious legalists... How about a sign from heaven? Amazing unbelief. But even more amazing is his saving grace and love. Even when religious leaders, uh, the religious legalists attack it. It's a little hidden in the translation, uh, all English translations, because there's no good way of translating it into English. We don't speak the way our phraseology, the way we speak in the English language is different from this ancient way of speaking. Uh, But literally, uh, verse 12, when it says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Literally, uh, Jesus says, truly I say to you, if a sign were given to this generation... And the sentence concludes. He sighs and then says, if a sign were given to this generation. And that's the end of the conversation, the end of the sentence. It's an ancient way of speaking. You can pick this up in a couple of places in the Old Testament, Second Kings, where one of the bad kings is trying to kill Elisha the prophet He says, if he's not dead soon, then you can cut off my own head. If, then the worst consequence will happen to me. Or another, um, uh, in Psalm, from the Old Testament, another place in the Old Testament, Psalm 95, which is frequently, uh, the verse there is frequently quoted in the New Testament, where It talks about where God says, I've swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. And the Greek translation of that has in the Old Testament, if they enter my rest, end of sentence. What is being said is, if this were to happen, then the worst consequence of that happening would come on me. We don't speak like that in the English language. There's no way of translating that. The closest that we, uh, that we, we, we talk in the English language would be to say something like, over my dead body, which of course is exactly What happened? There'll be a yet greater sign. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. At the cost of his own dead body. What amazing grace and love. Of 
Jesus saves even when religious legalists are against it. Jesus feeds even when Christian leaders find it hard to believe that he will do it this time. Jesus heals even when the culture is against it. And then the last sub-story of these stories is Jesus teaches even when they don't understand it. This is Jesus' teaching with the um, disciples from verse 14 to verse 21 of the end of our section of, that we read out from chapter 8, verse 14 to 21. And this is the teaching about the, uh, the leaven uh, of the Pharisees. Verse 15, he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, For many of us, I suppose, we're reasonably familiar with what leaven is, but some perhaps are not. So leaven is roughly equivalent to yeast. It was what what used to be uh, employed to make bread rise or leaven the bread. Uh, Leaven was uh, dough, uh, the constituent parts that when bread is cooked from which it comes, dough, D-O-U-G-H, Leaven was dough that had been fermented to rise from a previous batch of bread, but hadn't yet been cooked. And a piece of the leaven was put into the new batch of dough, and the leavening agents in that leaven would go through the whole new dough, and together it would rise, it would leaven the bread Uh, And the reason, of course, why Jesus uses uh, leaven is because uh, God's Old Testament people, as they were commanded to leave uh, Egypt and uh, hurry out on their journey to the promised land, they were commanded to take only unleavened bread. And so, therefore, in the New Testament, by and large, not always, Uh, It is used on one occasion positively, the idea of leaven, that Jesus in another gospel talks about how uh, the work of the kingdom, the work of the word is like a little bit of leaven that goes through the whole bread. There is one instance where it's used positively, but by and large, leaven in the New Testament is used of a small negative spiritual influence that therefore impacts the whole batch of dough, the whole Um, uh, church, the whole group of people. In uh, Matthew's version of this story, uh, we're told uh, specifically that the leaven refers to the teaching of the Pharisees. In Luke's version of this story, we're told specifically that the leaven refers to the hypocrisy. Uh, That is, that they were living one way that didn't match what they theoretically believed. They were hypocrites. It was the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Here, in our story in Mark's gospel, uh, Mark doesn't recount for us explicitly what Jesus means by leaven. But the story tells us very clearly what it is. Uh, Verse 18, having eyes... Do you not see? And having ears, 
Do you not hear? Notice that particularly because, of course, at the beginning of this section, we have the healing of the deaf man who now hears. But at the end, we have these disciples who perhaps don't yet hear spiritually. Having eyes, do you not see? Verse 18, having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000 and the four thousand and do you not yet understand so the leaven here is lack of belief lack of understanding lack of grasping who Jesus truly is despite his amazing miracles (laughs) amazing unbelief yet even more amazing his ongoing loving pursuit of us all. And all that's required from us is the seven loaves of faith, just a little bit, even the one loaf, which is all they had here. In uh, church history, One man, I think, grasped this principle, perhaps not more than any others, but certainly in an exemplary way. He was born in the northeast of this country, in America. Not uh, from a wealthy family and not not well-educated either. Early examples of his handwriting are pretty illiterate, and his spelling has, shall we say, a creative association with accurate spelling. But he went to church as a young man. Uh, One day, his Sunday school teacher pursued him to the factory where he was working and confronted him with the truth of the gospel And he gave his life to Jesus, his seven loaves, his one loaf. A little bit later, he moved west and came to live in Chicago. Or should I say Chicago? He became a shoe salesman and started up his own Sunday school, which was massively successful. There are lots of stories about him in those early days, his enthusiasm for the power of Christ and the way he'd given his, his, his life to Jesus in that context. Uh, one story is one Sunday, a child in the Sunday school program, he noticed as they took registration, had not, uh, was not there. And so D.L. Moody asked someone else to lead the meeting and he left the church building. He traveled across, uh, the sh- uh, across town. He found where the, 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 the student was living, he knocked loudly on the door, no response. He went round the back and he discovered there was a window open and so he he climbed through the window, (laughs) discovered this this young boy hiding under a desk or something like that and graciously dragged him to Sunday school. A little bit later when he was starting to become more and more well-known, he was in the United Kingdom 
And one man said to him these famous words. The world has yet to see what God can do through one man fully committed to him. And uh, he tells us as he thought about that phrase over and over again that he said to himself, I'm not a clever man. I'm not a wealthy man, but I can be that man. And in church history, that shoe salesman, D.L. Moody, no relation, has, if not being used more than any other person, certainly been used to impact the world beyond belief. What about us? So easy, isn't it, to think that it's about what we have rather than it being, being about who he is. And so let's bring to him our seven loaves, even one loaf. Let's pray together. Perhaps for you, uh, it will be deciding to be baptized. Perhaps that's what the Lord is writing onto your heart this morning as a response. Uh, maybe for you, it will be going to one of the adult communities or getting involved in a small group. Maybe it will be determining to come to church each week. But the starting point is in the quiet. Hear his. His words. Sense his touch in your ears or on your tongue. So that you might hear and believe. The starting point is who he is. So in the quiet, would you bring before him your life? Understanding that he, this Jesus is God. And our response is to be worship with all of our lives. Oh Lord, it can start small and always, almost always it does with just a loaf of bread. But help us, Lord, this morning to start to give everything to you, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.